He had read passages of it to his friend, and Sanderson had praised them. Ray knew he had not entered fully into the spirit of the thing, because he was merely and helplessly a newspaper mind, though since Ray had left the Echo, Sanderson had talked of leaving it too, and going on to devote himself to literature in New York. Ray knew he would fail, but he encouraged him because he was so fond of him, he thought now what a good, faithful fellow Sanderson was. Sanderson not only praised the novel to its author, but he celebrated it to the young ladies. They all knew that Ray had written it, and several of them spoke to him about it. They said they were just dying to see it. One of them had seen it, and when he asked her what she thought of his novel, in the pretense that he did not imagine she had looked at the manuscript, it galled him a little to have her say that it was like Thackeray. He knew he had imitated Thackeray, but he feigned that he did not know and he hoped no one else would see it. She recognized traits that he had drawn from himself, and he did not like that, either, in the same way that he feigned not to know that he had imitated Thackeray, he feigned not to know that he had drawn his own likeness. But the sum of what she said gave him great faith in himself and in his novel. He theorized that if its subtleties of thought and its flavors of style pleased a girl like her, and at the same time a fellow like Sanderson was taken with the plot, he had got the two essentials of success in it. He thought how delicately charming that girl was, still he knew that he was not in love with her. He thought how nice girls were, anyway, there were lots of perfectly delightful girls in Midland, and he should probably have fallen in love with some of them if it had not been for that long passion of his early youth, which seemed to have vastated him before he came there. He was rather proud of his vastation, and he found it not only fine, but upon the whole very convenient, to be going away heart-free. He had no embarrassing ties, no hindering obligations of any kind. He had no one but himself to look out for in seeking his fortune. His father, after long years of struggle, was very well placed in the little country town which Ray had come from to Midland, his brothers had struck out for themselves farther west one of his sisters was going to be married, the other was at school. None of them needed his help or was in any wise dependent upon him. He realized in thinking of it all that he was a very lucky fellow, and he was not afraid, but he should get on if he kept trying, and if he did his best, the chances were that it would be found out. He lay in his berth with a hopeful and flattered smile on his lips and listened to the noises of the station the feet on the platforms, the voices, as from some disembodied life, the clang of engine bells, the jar and clash and rumble of the trains that came and went, with a creaking and squealing of their slowing or starting wheels, while his sleeper was quietly side-tracked, waiting for the express to arrive and pick it up. He felt a sort of slight for the town he was to leave behind, a sort of contemptuous fondness, for though it was not New York, it had used him well, it had appreciated him, and Ray was not ungrateful. Upon the whole, he was glad that he had agreed to write those letters from New York, which the Hanks brothers had finally asked him to do for the Echo. He knew that they had asked him under a pressure of public sentiment, and because they had got it through them at last that other people thought he would be a loss to the paper. He liked well enough the notion of keeping the readers of the Echo in mind of him, if he failed to capture New York, Midland would always be a good point to fall back upon.
he expected his novel to succeed, and then he should be independent. But till then, the five dollars a week which the Hanks brothers proposed to pay him for his letters would be very convenient, though the sum was despicable in itself. Besides, he could give up the letters whenever he liked. He had his dreams of fame and wealth, but he knew very well that they were dreams, and he was not going to kick over his basket of glass till they had become realities. A keen ray from one of the electric moons depending from the black roof of the depot suddenly pierced his window at the side of his drawn curtain, and he felt the car jolted backward. He must have been drowsing, for the express had come in unknown to him, and was picking up his sleeper. With a faint thrill of homesickness for the kindly town he was leaving, he felt the train pull forward, and so out of its winking lamps into the night. He held his curtain aside to see the last of these lights. Then, with a luxurious sense of helplessness against fate, he let it fall, and Midland slipped back into the irrevocable past. The next evening, under a rich, mild October sky, the train drew in towards New York over a long stretch of trestle work spanning a New Jersey estuary. Ray had thriftily left his sleeper at the station where he breakfasted, and saved the expense of it for the day's journey by taking an ordinary car. He could be free with his dollars when he did not suppose he might need them, but he thought he should be a fool to throw one of them away on the mere self-indulgence of a sleeper through to New York when he had no use for it more than halfway. He experienced the reward of virtue in the satisfaction he felt at having that dollar still in his pocket and he amused himself very well in making romances about the people who got on and off at different points throughout the day. He read a good deal in a book he had brought with him, and imagined a review of it. He talked with passengers who shared his seat with him, from time to time. He ate ravenously at the station where the train stopped twenty minutes for dinner, and he took little supernumerary naps during the course of the afternoon and pieced out the broken and abbreviated slumbers of the night. From the last of these naps he woke with a sort of formless alarm, which he identified presently as the anxiety he must naturally feel at drawing so near the great, strange city which had his future in keeping. He was not so hopeful as he was when he left Midland, but he knew he had really no more cause now than he had then for being less so. The train was at a station. Before it started, a brakeman came in and called out in a voice of formal warning, this train express to Jersey City. Passengers for way stations change cars. This train does not stop between here and Jersey City. He went out and shut the door behind him, and at the same time a young woman with a baby in her arms jumped from her seat and called out, Oh, dear, what did he say? Another young woman, with another baby in her arms, rose and looked round, but she did not say anything. She had the place in front of the first, and their two seats were faced, as if the two young women were traveling together. Ray noted, with the interest that he felt in all young women as the elements both of love and of literature, that they looked a good deal alike, as to complexion and feature. The distraction of the one who rose first seemed to communicate itself to her dull, golden-brown hair, and make a wisp of it come loose from the knot at the back of her head, and stick out at one side. The child in her arms was fretful, and she did not cease to move it to and fro, and up and down, 
even in the panic which brought her to her feet. Her demand was launched at the whole car full of passengers, but one old man answered for all. He said, This train doesn't stop till it gets to Jersey City. The young woman said, Oh, and she and the other sat down again, and she stretched across the fretful child which clung to her and tried to open her window. She could not raise it, and the old man who had answered her question lifted it for her. Then she sank back in her seat, and her sister, if it was her sister, leaned forward and seemed to whisper to her. She put up her hand and thrust the loosened wisp of her hair back into the knot. To do this she gave the child the pocketbook which she seemed to have been holding, and she did not take it away again. The child stopped fretting and began to pull at its plaything to get it open, then it made aimless dabs with it at the back of the car seat and at its mother's face. She moved her head patiently from side to side to escape the blows, and the child entered with more zest into the sport and began to laugh and strike harder. Suddenly, midway of the long trestle work, the child turned towards the window and made a dab at the sail of a passing sloop. The pocketbook flew from its hand, and the mother sprang to her feet again with a wail that filled the car. Oh, what shall I do? He's thrown my pocketbook out of the window, and it's got every cent of my money in it. Oh, couldn't they stop the train?